0: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Nick McGore, our retail banking correspondent, and we're joined down the line from Paris by Harriet Agnew, our correspondent in France. Also, our guest this week is Charles Randall, who's chairman of the Financial Conduct Authority. This week, we'll be discussing the FCA – Caroline is just back from interviewing Mr. Randall at the FCA. Secondly, a look at Monzo, the challenger bank, as it reports record losses. And finally, look at Rothschild and the battle that has riven the old banking dynasty. First, though, to the FCA. Caroline, you've just hot-footed it back from the FCA's new headquarters in Stratford in East London, where you've been speaking for the first time, I think, in terms of the on-the-record interviews that Charles Randall, the new chairman, has given. A few interesting lines, which we'll go on to hear about, but possibly the most striking is that he's worried about the misuse of data. Is that right?
1: That's right. So yes, you're right. This is Charles Randall's first interview as the new chairman of the FCA. He took over from John Griffith Jones in April. He's formerly a board member of the Prudential Regulation Authority at the Bank of England. And before that, he was a corporate finance partner at Slaughter and May for 30 years. So yeah, I asked him what his main concerns and priorities would be going forward. And top of the list, I think, was the use of data or misuse of data He wants to prevent financial firms from having their Cambridge Analytica moment, he said, and basically is slightly worried about how algorithms might throw out outcomes that aren't entirely in
0: consumers' best interests. Well, let's hear exactly what he did have to say about data
2: misuse. Well, there are several different ways in which I think the use of customer data could create issues of confidence and fairness. The Application of algorithms to customer data can, if it's not properly governed and supervised, can run away and start producing outcomes that society would regard as completely unfair. I mean, for example, there was a BBC news report that some price comparison websites appeared to be quoting higher premiums on car insurance for people with names that are generally associated with ethnic minorities than for other consumers. Now, I personally don't know whether that was true or not, but if it was, it would be an example of an algorithm doing a job that had been set according to a series of rules but producing an outcome that would completely undermine, I think, consumer confidence in the fairness of the process. So that's just a, that's a specific example, but there are many, many others that can happen in all sorts of protection products and all sorts of investment products. And the industry doesn't want That sort of moment. So it's not as if we're working against the grain, I think, of what financial innovators want, but they want support and they want to work with the regulator in this area.
0: Next up was the vexed topic of how much regulation there should be. Obviously, we're debating this partly as the US begins a deregulatory process, partly as Brexit looms and people are talking about the UK becoming more competitive. Let's hear what Charles Randall had to say about right-sizing
2: regulation. My top concern in relation to the shape of regulation after Brexit is ensuring that we use the available opportunities to maintain very high standards of regulation that are understood by both consumers and by the firms we regulate, and that are considered to be smart. I think one of the most common criticisms of regulation is not that it's wrong in its objectives, it's often that it isn't smart enough in the way it achieves its objectives and that it's too ponderous, it requires long, incomprehensible disclosures, the rules are intricate and difficult to follow, and that they focus insufficiently on outcomes. And I think those are the areas where people will want to have a discussion after Brexit about the shape of regulation, rather than, if I'm right in interpreting the political landscape, suggesting that we, we as you put it, race to the bottom.
1: You mentioned earlier
3: right-sizing regulation. Is this a return-to-light-touch regulation?
2: Absolutely not, no. So that's why I I hope I emphasise that I don't see a race to the bottom. I don't believe that we should return to light touch regulation as an across-the-board principle. There are markets in which our touch should be lighter than in others. Um, so there are some wholesale markets where it's clearly not necessary for us to intervene in the way that we would, for example, in a market in which the vulnerable consumers were active. So our interventions have to be proportionate They have to be focused on the outcomes that we produce, and we need to make sure that the regulations that we impose, which incrementally can add up to a huge amount and a huge burden on firms, are actually achieving the end objective that we seek. I don't think anyone could argue with that, actually. I think that's what good regulation looks like. Now, it's no secret that some European directives and regulations are not exactly as the UK regulator would have liked to have shaped them if it had been the sole holder of the pen. So that's an area in which we may have opportunities to right-size regulation without losing important protections.
0: Karen, your thoughts on those views? Were you surprised?
1: Well, I think it fits into the general theme that we've... Heard over the last year or so, the Bank of England had already announced that it wanted to review where we had got to with post crisis reform and just whether there were any unintended consequences. And that's similarly felt in reviews that the European Union and also the FSB are undertaking. And I think, as you say, that there are various headwinds at the moment. There's what the US is doing in terms of the rollback of some of its post crisis reforms. And also, I think the FCA is very mindful that it really does have to wait and see where we land with the Brexit final deal, if indeed we'd get one, and how much scope there might be to roll back some of the reforms
0: there. Final topic that you thought was really interesting was his views on big mergers. Now, this is a topic that has risen up over the past few weeks. There have been suggestions of various deals, including something that we wrote about Barclays thinking of a potential deal with Standard Chartered, Let's hear a snapshot of his view on this topic.
2: I think the key thing for us is that we need a banking sector that is strong, but we also need a banking sector that's competitive, and competition is within our remit. Safety and soundness, of course, is a matter for the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority. So we will be very interested in the competitive aspects of any mergers because that's very directly within our mandate and an erosion of competition can lead to poor consumer outcomes in a sector that's already quite concentrated. So I think I can't give you an answer in any specific terms, but I can obviously highlight that our competition mandate will be high up there if we're presented with any merger proposals to consider. The other thing that we have got very much front of mind is the integration problems that arise in complex corporate transactions. And we have seen with bank systems that many of them had not yet digested the integration challenges that they faced as a result of mergers going back a decade. And so the continuity of customer service and the smoothness of the integration is a critical part of any. Mergers, So we'll have a point of view on any significant mergers. And finally, Caroline, your thoughts on that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think Charles is a really interesting person to ask on this topic, because not only has he been a regulator for a number of years, he advised the government during the financial crisis on various bad banks, such as Northern Rock and Bradford and Bingley. But before that, he was a corporate M&A partner at one of the top M&A law firms in the world, Slaughter and May. So I think his view on mega-mergers coming to the fore once again at least being talked about once again is really interesting. And obviously, we we're coming at it 10 years later than we were the last time we saw this round. We're all stung a little bit by the financial crisis, regulators included. So it's not surprising really that there's very much a note of caution that both the FCA would be very much interested in one of these big mergers in terms of how it might affect consumers, but also that the Bank of England very much might have something to say when it comes to financial stability.
0: Indeed, they might. Well, thanks very much for that, Caroline, and the world exclusive... Let's move on to our second topic and a look at Monzo, the challenger bank, a mobile only bank, which, Nick, you've been taking a look at their results and they don't look that pretty.
4: Yeah, well, so the results for the year to the end of February were published on Monday and showed that their losses went up more than fourfold over the 12 months from around 8 million to more than 33 million that doesn't look great as a top line but i mean the immediate loss is not necessarily a major issue in itself it's common for startups to take a couple of years to get going and a lot of the costs were to do with its all prepaid card scheme which is very expensive to run however if you sort of take a look below that in the numbers there's some kind of broader issues in there that highlights the challenges of getting out of those losses monzo mainly does current accounts which no matter how nice your app is it's a scale game and Right now, they're doing a good job at getting lots of customers. They're up to about 750,000 people, which was more than tripled over the year. But the average deposit per customer was at less than £150. And if you're running these current accounts, it's costing almost as much to run it with £150 in there as if there was £2,000 in there. Only one in five of the new users are putting in the salary until so you can get over that line it becomes really difficult to compete with the big banks who get the benefit of this cheap money coming in that they can use then to lend out and make more profits later.
0: So I suppose the bottom line is, will they succeed as a challenger bank? Will they become the next generation NatWest, let's say?
4: Well, I mean, if you ask Monzo, they're obviously confident that they will do. Already, they've made some progress in cutting how much it costs them to run the accounts. And they say they're going to do more on that. They can automate some of the customer service systems and stuff. And since the end of that reporting period, they have introduced their first lending product, which was an overdraft. And they say that there's more coming soon, but they didn't give any indication of when they actually will be able to, for the business as a whole, get into profit. So we'll have to wait and see on that.
0: We will, well, let's keep a track on that as the months and years progress. Thanks, Nick. Now, finally, let's go across to Paris where we're joined by Harry Agnew, who's been taking an in-depth look at a long-running feud between two wings of the Rothschild banking dynasty. So Harriet, tell us about the feud.
3: Well, this is all about a fight between um, two branches of the Rothschild banking dynasty over the family name. So we have two protagonists. On one side, there's Edmond de Rothschild, which is a Franco-Swiss private bank and asset manager. And then on the other side, we have Rothschild & Co. in Paris, which is largely known for its investment banking business. And the two businesses are run by cousins who are direct descendants of the founder. So the two strands of the family have long sparred over the name. And this came to a head just over three years ago when Edmond de Rothschild issued a cease and desist order to Rothschild & Co. in Paris. So they basically argued that Rothschild & Co were referring to themselves just as Rothschild, which suggested that they had sole claim to the family name. Now, Edmund de Rothschild felt that that was unfair for them and competitively difficult.
0: Which is interesting, isn't it? Because these two businesses are not directly competing for business. They're not in the same sphere. One, as you said, is a kind of private bank looking after people's wealth. The other is an investment banking advisory firm that counsels companies on M&A and so on. Why had it got so heated?
3: Well, I think that's not entirely true, actually. I mean, there is quite a bit of overlap between the two businesses. So, for example, Rothschild & Co, while I think two-thirds of their revenues are investment banking, they do have an asset management and private banking business, which they're trying to grow. And then Edmund de Rothschild in the past has muttered about making forays into investment banking, particularly in London. So I think there's enough of an overlap as well for there to be competitive concerns.
0: That's a key point. And yet the feud is over. There's been a resolution of this long-running fight so what exactly is the deal that the two sides have struck?
3: Well, the two sides have struck an agreement which will bar both groups from using the Rothschild name by itself in branding. So they will have to refer to themselves as Edmund de Rothschild or Rothschild & Co. I think it's going to have the main impact on Rothschild & Co because they've been referring to themselves just as Rothschild on their website and in their email addresses and some of their marketing material. And this is something that they're going to have to change.
0: Why now? How has it come to an end?
3: Well, look, I think the main reason that this happened now is that the two parts of the family were due to meet in court last week. And as we all know, the Rothschilds are intensely private and discreet. And so the idea of going and dragging this all through a messy court case would be a total nightmare for them. So I think that really gave them the impetus to get it done. There were also some other factors that I think sort of encouraged both families to find a solution at Rothschild & Co. in Paris. David de Rothschild, who's the sort of legendary figure of investment banking, stepped back last month and passed over the reins of chairman to his son Alexandre. Alexandre's only 37 years old, and I understand that David was very keen to get this issue resolved so that Alexandre didn't have to sort of drag it out. And, you know, as part of this, Rothschild and co brought in a, a lawyer called Jean-Michel Darrois just a few months ago. And he's a very sort of well-known top negotiator in Paris. And I think that helped speed up the process and make sure that they didn't have to go through this messy court case.
0: And of course, as we've written before, David de Rothschild and now Alexandra, his son, are at the helm of the Franco-British wing of Rothschilds, aren't they? Because that as well was a split business which became unified.
3: Well, exactly, yeah. One of the core things that David managed to do was to bring NM Rothschild, as it was known, which is the London Investment Bank, under the French parent company. I mean, I think what's interesting here is that, you know, at one point people wondered, could we see a merger between Edmund de Rothschild and Rothschild & Co? And I think we can categorically say now, no, we will not. Because as part of the deal, the two groups are going to unwind their cross-shareholdings in one another. So really, they're separating themselves and they're making it very clear about how the name can be used.
0: Very good. Well, thank you for the update on the infighting. I'm sure we'll continue to monitor Rothschild for the next few years, few centuries, whatever. They date back to the 18th century, so um, certainly a lasting brand. Thank you, Harriet, for joining us from Paris. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Caroline and Nick here in the studio, our interviewee, Charles Randall, the chairman of the FCA, and also Harriet in Paris. Thank you for listening, too. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.
4: Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources